Thank you for joining us today on the webinar on the private equity deal outlook for 2023. We've got two remarkable speakers with us thus far. We're supposed to have a third panelist. We've got Rick Kess from RSM joining us and Hector Torres from DC Advisory joining us. We'll start, and we should have Dr. Kapoor joining us shortly, but just to be mindful of everybody's time, we'll get started in just about 30 seconds where I'll ask Rick and Hector to introduce themselves. Then we'll talk about what to expect in deal activity for 2023. Do they have a sense of areas where deal activity will be hotter or colder? What's expected in terms of valuations, insight into the credit markets, and a little bit more. Let me get started by, one, thanking our audience for joining us, Becker Private Equity Podcast, Becker Business Minute. Uh, but this webinar really features Hector, Rick, and hopefully Dr. Kapoor. Rick Kess, partner at RSM, do you want to take a moment introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your work and about RSM, and then Hector will ask you to do the same. Uh, sure. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, I'm Rick Kess. I'm a partner at RSM. I focus primarily on the healthcare industry, but also work kind of broadly in our um in our economist uh, office, if you will, and work for our chief economist on various um, items, which almost always brings us back to private equity. Um, RSM is one of the leading professional services firms in the middle market. And um, because of our focus on the middle market, we tend to work with private equity groups uh, quite a lot. So I think, um, I think we have a really strong private equity practice and we're focused primarily in the middle market. We go maybe slightly up market from there. And like I said, I'm focused in healthcare, but we have people that focus in almost every industry that private equity touches. So glad to be part of this call, Scott, and uh, looking forward to hearing the other panelists. Thank you very, very much. Hector, yourself as well, you've had this fascinating career, and I believe you and some colleagues founded a new firm in the last year or two. Tell us about Hector Torres and about your firm. Thank you, Scott. Pleasure to be here. Uh, Hector Torres, I'm a managing director at Daiwa Corporate Advisory, where I lead our global healthcare services M&A advisory coverage efforts and, and with a real strategic focus on working with provider-based organizations and, and more and more uh, so on behalf of private equity firms investing uh, in the domestic healthcare services ecosystem. Um, with a focus on a, a variety of verticals, but more specifically, um, acute care hospitals and health systems, all things physician practice management, and um, working with clients across all verticals and sub-verticals within post and, and sub-acute care. In the last five years alone, we've had the privilege of advising uh, in excess of three and a half billion dollars uh, worth of healthcare services transactions. And in the last decade, certainly the prevalence and influx of capital being driven by the private equity community has uh, in many ways changed the healthcare services landscape and will certainly continue um, that evolution in earnest in, in 2023 and beyond. So pleasure, pleasure to be here with everyone. Well, thank you and congratulations. Take a moment, and I'll start with you, Hector, and then move to Rick. 2020 was sort of a COVID strange year for deal activity. 2021 and 2021 was incredibly busy, the busiest year most of us remember in history in terms of deal making. 2022, the first half of the year was okay. The end of 22 slowed down. Uh, investment banking way down last year. 
What do you sort of see for 2023? What does deal activity look like as you head in 2023? I know private equity still has a trillion three to put to work or some number around that. What's your expectations for this coming year? Yeah, yeah, that's the proverbial question. And, and coming off of the, the 34, 41st annual JP Morgan Healthcare Conference here in San Francisco, I think we saw uh, some, some recurrent themes, which is certainly there is a pause in the action. Um, I, I think in many ways that, that tw- second half of 2021, first half of 22 period was really an encapsulation of not just a, a full year's worth of M&A transactional volume, but in many ways, a year and a half's worth of, of volume. Um, we've certainly seen the market uh, cool down relative to that level of activity and volume of transactions. But to your point, Scott, there, there still is $1.3 trillion of, of you know, dry powder from the private equity community being directed at the, at the healthcare ecosystem. So that money needs to be deployed and put to work. Uh, but I think the level of scrutiny, um, and, and if there's one word that was consistent, um, is, is pristine, right? Uh, I think the private equity firms are underwriting assets that are really pristine in their efficacy, their long-term growth. And, and uh, you know, interestingly, um, they, they're really excited about assets that are not just growing inorganically uh, through M&A. Um, I think that's an important growth driver for private equity, certainly. But they're really focused on same store sales and organic growth opportunities, whether it's continued investment in ancillary revenue streams for provider based entities um, or, or, or just really, you know, old school recruitment of best in class physicians to really grow um, the catchment area and, and coverage um, of, of any provider based enterprise. We, we have seen um, also a tale of two worlds. Um, you know, a- any organization that's coming to the market with, um, for example, you know, significant COVID overhang in terms of revenue and profitability contribution margin, or have an angle, a story, uh, or, the, or the earnings profile of the enterprise has, you know, a significant number of pro forma adjustments. Uh, we're just seeing, you know, not a lot of interest uh, from any buyer community in those types of organizations. For the organizations that have a very solid, defensible, incredible earnings base, that good growth um, from an organic point of view and perspective, and just have a really clean trajectory uh, to the viability of continued success, those those deals are still getting done, and they're still getting done at relative premiums. But 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 it is the tale of two worlds. I would end it by telling you that we foresee is the first quarter being extremely soft from an M&A volume point of view and perspective, and that trend probably continuing through the second quarter. But as we see stabilization in both the macroeconomic environment, as well as in particular, the debt capital markets environment, we foresee a very similar wave of influx of volume of very high quality deals in the second half of 2023 similar to that wave that we saw in the second half of 2021. Thank you. And what you said resonates with a lot of what we're hearing is people returning to look at improving core operations, core businesses, blocking and tackling same store growth. Um, you know, people trying to grow through a mix of improving their own businesses in M and a, but if you're doing M and a and your own business is really faltering, it's a troubling situation. You also mentioned what I'm hearing a lot is a sort of trough and deal activity currently with an expectation that that picks up at some point during the second half of the year, possibly as valuations sort of come to a sort of like a meeting point 
between sellers who are still looking at valuations from when the market was really inflated versus buyers that are trying to be a little bit more careful. Thank you for that perspective, Hector. Thank you. Rick, you guys see as much deal activity, as much work in the private equity space as anybody in the country, particularly in the middle market. What are your some of your observations heading into deal activity for 2023? What do you sort of see out there? Yeah, thanks, Scott. I, I mean, um, unfortunately, we didn't we don't have video on. Otherwise, you'd have been seeing me nod my head to Hector's commentary. I think um, you know a lot of what he said is is kind of spot on. What we're seeing, um, you know, a lot of our private equity group clients are asking us to help them, um, you know, really become more efficient within their business model, um, really streamline what they're doing today, um, you know, focus on becoming a lot more profitable uh, within what they already own and really getting the business that they they own kind of humming versus going out and, you know, doing the, the bolt-on acquisitions that they maybe had planned on uh, a year uh, or 18 months ago. So we see a lot of that and a lot of focus on kind of the core operations of the current businesses that they own. And then I, I think Hector's also extremely right that to think that, you know, in the last half of the year, um, you know, really well-ran organizations that have great business models and opportunities for growth and, and again, really good management teams, I think will continue to be, um, you know, areas that are attractive to investors um, and, and deals will get done in that, in that space. I do think that if, you know, your business isn't doing as well as, as maybe others, or, you know, perhaps you're in an area or geography that isn't growing itself or, you know, other factors that are impacting your overall performance, I think you're going to have a harder time seeing a deal come together. But you know, the one thing, and I know we've talked about this before and, and it's been mentioned um, several times is the amount of capital that is left to be put to work that private equity groups have, um, you know, at, on the sideline is, is still really, really interesting to know that they're, they're going to have to put some of that money to work. And when, when the deals are coming together and there is a good business to buy, um, I think they're going to find uh, some of those deals coming coming full full circle and and, and closing out before the end of the year. So I, I kind of echo a lot of what what Hector said that you know we'll see some activity, but I do think um, having a really re well ran organization and being able to to support the growth that that organizations will want um, is going to be critical in being being ones that that actually acquisitions happen with. And Rick, let me start with you here on the next question about the credit markets, because both of you know a lot of committed capital. You know, when people talk about this trillion two, trillion five, somewhere in there in terms of committed capital that's not been spent yet, and the private equity funds are very incented to put that to work because they've got to put to work, they don't earn their management fees on it, they don't have a chance to turn it into profitable businesses and make the percentage on it. That's their, their business is putting that money to work, but they also don't want to put it to money put it to work stupidly where it doesn't turn into profits returns on the back end. Talk about the credit markets. Are the credit markets open? Are they closed? How open are they? I know there've been a lot of discussions towards the second half of 2022 that credit was getting tougher. Some of the big banks have gotten slower on doing PE sponsored deals. What is the deal with the credit markets currently and how does that impact deal activity? 
Yeah, I think Scott, you know, in particular, the big bank activity, I think is, is we're still seeing some of that where, you know, the bigger, you know, well-known banks out there are, are being slow to react to some of the opportunities that are out there to, to land on. Um, you know, there are still a lot of other alternatives to big banks that um, will lend money, um, perhaps at multiple or not multiples, but at rates that, you know, maybe aren't as attractive, obviously, but um, or terms or, or covenants or something that, you know, other people wouldn't necessarily uh, prefer. But, you know, in the time that we're in, maybe they, they, they don't have much of a choice. But, you know, I do think, um, you know, that, you know, there is the ability to get that uh, if, you know, you have a good business and you're obviously sponsored by a reputable group, um, you know, I think you have the opportunity to find debt. It's just maybe not in the, in the places that, you know, historically you've been able to go to in the past and, and obviously at rates that are, are much higher than you would have seen, you know, 18 months ago. So, you know, I think that's, it's still happening. And obviously, you know, the, the debt market drives a lot of these acquisitions because, you know, most acquisitions that occur within a private equity group structure are going to be pretty highly leveraged. Um, so they're going to need a lot of debt to be able to get some of those deals done. So we'll continue to kind of monitor that, but I think that's kind of our perspective right now is that it's, it's pretty similar to what we saw towards the end of 2022. Thank you. And, and Hector, your thoughts on the debt area and how much work you guys do in debt? What does your business look like in terms of private debt versus private equity and deal structure and so forth. And what are you seeing in the debt markets? Yeah, thanks, Scott. Um, we certainly, the, the debt capital markets component is is one of several uh, in terms of our business model, the core being M&A advisory, but obviously debt in relation to private equity uh, structural alternatives is, 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 is core and foundational uh, to all things related. We've seen a parabolic increase in debt pricing. Um, I would say on average um, from about Q4 uh, to the beginnings of Q1 of 2023, almost a five to 600 basis point uptick in the overall cost of debt capital, which is very significant, right? Um, a lot of these uh, leverage buyouts are just that. Uh, they, they need leverage and the pricing that's attained on that leverage is indicative and directional in terms of what the ultimate purchase price and terms are uh, for any given transaction. So that is certainly the case today, and that's affecting, obviously, valuation multiples, uh, conversely. What I would, what would add is I think it's also inspiring a level of creativity um, in, in many of the private equity firms. Um, and, and before I go into those aspects, I would say that for the, for the syndicated loan market for these leveraged buyouts, meaning that the, the larger transactions, um, the multi-billion dollar transactions, that, that um, segment of the debt capital markets environment is, is relatively icy, if not ice cold. Um, there's a lot of depredation and a lot of a wait and see mentality to see how the macroeconomic picture evolves. I think for the middle market and certainly the lower middle market where you know, those transactions are deemed from a lending perspective, a little bit more risk adjusted, the debt is there, but the pricing is, as I said, parabolically higher relative to what the levels of pricing we were seeing even a quarter ago. I'll go into the aspect of the creativity because private equity firms still need to deploy that capital. So what we're seeing is an evolution in two ways. Um, a lot of over-equitization of transactions. I mean, we can point to recent trends with Toma Bravo and 
executing very large multi-billion dollar deals with no debt, uh, which is relatively unheard of in the private equity community. But we're seeing that translate to the middle and lower middle markets of the healthcare industry in the United States as well. Um, met with many private equity firms here in San Francisco this week that are literally under LOI and, and running to the finish line on, on acquisitions with no debt, uh, with, the, with the mindset of let's over-equitize the transactional structure on the front end. And once the debt capital markets environment stabilizes and returns to you know, uh, uh, normalized levels, we can then effectively refinance the business with the appropriate level of debt at the right price. Uh, so very much a sort of a creative approach to solving for um, a lot of the issues that are front and center in the current M&A environment. Thank you. And, and fascinating. When you talk about the rates going up 500, 600 basis points, you know, it, it, that, that might be from a 5% to a 10% on a subordinated loan or a mezzanated lo- mezzanine loan. Is that the real the numbers that you're looking at, like 10% interest rates, 12% interest rates? Sometimes north of 12%, uh, depending on the, cer- the, the subsector, the category, and the risk profile of the entity. Yeah, very much so. Wow. So that starts to yeah. be like the old credit card debt or, or really expensive debt. If yeah, you have people really, using really more expensive. equity for the time being. Yeah. It, the other thing incredible. I think that private equity firm, what, what private equity firms are also doing is, is being really thoughtful around structured credit products and opportunities. Uh, whereas you may have a private equity firm that really never had a vantage point or perspective on deploying capital in a structured credit way. Uh, but they're saying in lieu of going out and getting really expensive paper uh, in the way of debt on this new acquisition, let's take a structured equity uh, uh, a component to sort of bridge the gap in the capitalization structure of the transaction. We're seeing that as well. All, all really under the guise of trying to avoid uh, at all costs that really, really expensive uh, you know, debt that we're seeing in the market. I bet. That, those are fascinating and scary numbers. you got $100 million in debt. Your debt picture has gone from $6 million a year in interest to $12 million a year in interest. It's a big difference, and a big difference in actual cash flow. And at the end of the day, you need cash flow to keep feeding the business and growing the business. It's, it's a frightening, uh, frightening thought. Um, Precisely. Rick, Tess, Rick, let me ask you, any areas or niches, healthcare, non-healthcare, where you're still seeing more activity, more interest, versus less activity, and I guess con- conversely, are there any areas where the bloom is off the rose, where people are being very careful about investing? I'm not sure if it's, it's so much sector-specific as it is you know, kind of performance-specific, as, as Hector and I have already talked about a little bit, but you know, I still think you know, that areas where you're going to be able to find you know, exponential growth, so you know, you see a lot of people interested in areas where, you know, because of the aging population and people growing and in, growing into Medicare, you know, things that are in and around the Medicare Advantage market or, you know, businesses that are really good or have leaned into kind of the, the value-based care model within healthcare. So accepting risk or something of that nature, some, some different types of payment models. Some of those organizations I think are still, there's, there's investors that are curious and interested in those mark in that market. Um, but I also think that, you know, a lot of the specialty groups that, you know, have been areas of focus for a long time, whether it be, you know, um, 
orthopedic specialists or um, home health and hospice or some of the other things that, again, are, are seeing growth in population because of the change in demographics. I think you'll continue to see um, focus there. Um, you know, in non-healthcare areas, you know, I think um, some of the other analysts that I talked to within the firm are, you know, really focused on areas that are heavy on technology and making things easier, um, especially for businesses. So uh, technology enablement businesses that are, you know, really being able to kind of make, make things happen easier. So automation or anything where you're taking um, potentially some of the labor force problems off the, the burden of, of a company to grow. I think those are companies that are still really attractive to investors. So I'd say those are probably the areas that I've seen the most um, dialogue around, but, um, you know, curious to see what Hector's seeing also. When you look at sort of the, um, this issue of technology companies, how much does that differentiate based on, you know, whether it's profitability there or not profitability there, we've certainly seen the bottom fall out of venture capital funding in the technology markets where there's not yet profits. What, what's your sense of, of, of that? Does a lot of it just depend on the, is the company already mature? Does it have sustainable profits? Early stage tech having a hard time. Any sense of that in terms of that sector? Yeah. I mean, I think again, if, you know, most of the private equity groups that we're working with aren't investing in like pre-revenue companies or anything like that. So, you know, they're, they're looking at maybe more mature businesses that, you know, are really, again, being selling technology into companies to, you know, allow them to be more efficient. So, um, you know, we see a lot of that in the healthcare space, but also in other industries where, you know, you're really selling services to businesses so that they can become more, um, you know, they can improve their operations. So, um, you know, lots of software service and other things of that nature that I think those are continuing to be pretty, pretty, uh, you know, attractive to the private equity groups that we work with. Thank you very, very much. And, and Hector, some of your thoughts there as well. Any sectors or areas you see more or less interest in, or does it just depend on the health of the business? What, what, what's your sense? Yeah, I think the health of the business, the trajectory, and the, the defensible nature relative to, to a macroeconomic downturn um, is still making for a lot of interest across the entire healthcare ecosystem. So I, I totally agree with Rick. I think he's spot on. I would say areas of affinity um, that we're getting a lot of consistent feedback from private equity in particular are really a, a, not a systematic shift, but certainly at a minimum, um, a, a desire to learn more, um, if not, you know, in some instances, a true systematic shift towards the outsourced services um, component of the healthcare industry, meaning any, anything that's effectuating efficiency, I'll give examples, you know, outsource revenue cycle management, outsource staffing, um, outsource clinical trial management, clinical research organizations, um, relative to, you know, what was really an affinity for reimbursement risk related assets, such as large scale orthopedic practices and, and physician enterprises and acute care hospitals, et cetera. Um, I think that we always joke that we, we all know the healthcare industry is anti-cyclical and durable relative to other sectors of the economy uh, in relation to a downturn. Um, but I, I think that the private equity community in particular is looking at opportunities that are not only going to be defensible and be able to weather the, down, the downturn, 
um, but could also actually potentially grow um, uh, in an outsized manner relative to those other categories during that downturn. Um, in particular, you know, anything that's effectuating the commercialization um, of a drug um, or, 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 or a medical device, for example, those are areas that, you know, private equity firms that didn't necessarily have a thesis in those categories a year ago are saying, you know, maybe these are areas that we need to start to develop that investment thesis. Thank you very, very much. And, and Rick, I'll turn you to the next question, which is one of valuations. I mean, obviously the market's been way down and then way up so far at the start of this year as inflation seems to be coming a little bit under control and people start to think the Fed won't move as aggressively. What are you seeing in terms of valuations and what do you maybe expect over the next year in terms of the valuation picture out there? Yeah, I think, you know, Hector had a comment earlier on today that, you know, kind of resonated with what we're seeing is that, you know, businesses that are profitable, that are doing well, that have a good business model are still seeing a bit of a premium um, on their, you know, on what they would be expecting for a multiple and businesses that, you know, obviously are and are on the other side of that aren't, that aren't performing well, um, you know, aren't, either aren't getting any interest or all, at all or, you know, being uh, negotiating with a, a much lower multiple than they would have thought previously. So, you know, I think that's really, again, kind of what we're seeing is maybe not that the multiples are as general as you used to be able to say, like, well, your average, you know, XYZ business in this vertical is going to get a 10 times multiple. Um, now it's really more business specific or maybe performance specific, you know, being that, you know, your, your highly performing companies are still demanding a pretty high level of a premium on their EBITDA multiples versus those that are, that aren't doing well. But um, again, I think that's kind of the, the common theme that we're seeing is, is, good companies can still demand a premium. That's fantastic. I think your perspective on that is it's a little bit less macro. There's a macro part of it, a macro part of it in terms of just the entire economy, the cost of debt, where multiples are in general. But there's also very much a company-specific micro part of it as to how sustainable are the earnings of that company? What does the growth look like of that company? How strong are they? Really tries it very specifically. So, so it really yes, does become as much art and science as that company as in terms of total market dynamics as well. Hector, you're in the deal business. What's your sense of valuations? Because it's, it's the question, of course, that sellers are very, very prone to, uh, and, then, and then buyers are obviously quite concerned about as well. Where do you see valuations over the next 12 months? What's your sense of where things are going there? Yeah, I think the last two years and arguably perhaps even the last five um, re really saw outsized valuations to where um, I recall the exact figures, but we did a retrospective analysis many years ago, looking at valuations in the last five years relative to valuations in healthcare over the last 30 years. And the last two years were literally about two standard deviations to the right of that sort of 50th percentile, right? So I, I think we were uh, almost in a way in a market that was relatively irrationally exuberant <laughs> from a valuation standpoint. And, and, and probably, and, and as, it, as much as it pains me as, a, as, a, as a, an investment banker to say it, you know, probably not truly reflective of, of, of the inherent true intrinsic value of those assets and really driven by supply and demand imbalance and, um, you know, a, a lot of dry powder chasing a finite number of assets in a partic particular category. 
Um, I think we're going to see a continued uh, reversion back to normalized levels of uh, valuation multiples. Um, we've already seen that um, begin in earnest, uh, but I don't necessarily see the valuations um, you know, falling off of a cliff. Um, I just think that the days of, to give you a case study example, the days of a, a, a five uh, provider group uh, with minimum scale size and, and market indispensability coming to the market and expecting to get 15, 16, 17, and 18 times EBITDA, I think those days are, are over, right? Uh, but I, I do think that there is still a, a very robust and dynamic market uh, just at normalized valuation levels. And I think over the evolution of the first half of this year, we'll see a slow trend towards that, that, that fair market value, if you will, from a valuation standpoint. No, what you sort of see there, a lot to digest there, Hector. Thank you so much. What, what, you, what you said is somewhat inflated deal multiples of the last several years, particularly in this period of time when it was what people thought it was just a seller's market, just not enough sellers, not enough businesses to buy, and so much private equity funds, to, to money to put to work. I mean, just a couple of years ago, we were talking about two and a half to three trillion dollars of money to put to work. Now it's down to a trillion, two trillion, three trillion, four. But those are crazy numbers and not enough businesses to put them into. Now you've got sort of a tightening up the market and we'll see yep. where that market comes back to as that reopens up, but you're not expecting a complete trouncing of valuations. Quite frankly, we had somebody looking at a deal currently where you know, the business is still making lots of money. So the seller is not going to take a really low valuation because they're doing fine in their existing state. And, and so, and, and that, that serves as sort of a lever or a floor is at some point they'll just keep the business entirely versus taking an investment if the valuation is not strong enough. So right. to, to, sort of, to sort of summarize what I've heard from Rick and Hector today is, is here's what I've got so far. Deal activity slowed at the end of 2022. Most people are expecting a pretty slow first quarter 2023 uh, with the expectation it will pick up gradually and then hopefully really pick up steam in the second half of this year. Credit market's still very challenging. Got some specific stats of credit rates being up, you know, 500, 600 basis points, literally people borrowing at 12% plus in many situations, which really puts an impact on, on, on cash flows and so forth. I think Hector talked about that a lot. Rick made the very important point that while there are valuation metrics generally, macro valuation dynamics, it's also very specific as to the, the micro business, the specific business and the strength of that business. And, and, and almost in terms of general, less about, there's still lots and lots of interest in technology, but technology with profits or true clear pathway to profitability. Um, and, and, and many private equity funds that aren't niche specific, being open to lots of different areas, but it being very specific to the health and sustainability of, of that company itself. The other thing that Hector pointed out was, you know, just a couple of years ago, some of the practice management platforms were buying up practices at very expensive multiples. And that sort of time of buying up smaller practices at very high multiples seems to be coming to an end. Um, that, that, that time has passed. They still might do fine, uh, but that, that ability for those practice management platforms to arbitrage quickly by selling to the next private equity fund or, or, going, or, or exiting has softened. So the ability to overpay or, or indulge high prices 
in buying some of those bolt-ons has also softened. Hector and Rick, Tess, I want to thank the two of you for joining us today on this this webinar, the Private Equity Deal Outlook for 2023. I, I know Dr. Kapoor joined us late. We will get him on another webinar. He's a brilliant serial entrepreneur and speaker and, and thinker, um, but probably too disruptive at this point to add in that part of the discussion. You know, I would, um, you know, I am tempted to indulge you with some of the questions I have, like Tesla's been up 500% or 446% the last several years. Now it's down last year. What happens with that? But I'll avoid going into those kinds of tangents and stick to the topic at hand today, which is the PE Dale outlook for 2023. Hector and Rick, just fantastic. Dr. Kapoor, we look to have you on another webinar. Thank you all for joining us today, and thank you for the production team at Executive Podcast Solutions. Thank you, Jeremy Corr.